We are familiar with the idea of a celebrated arrival, aren't we? We see celebrations like this in sports championships, right? They, they occur whenever a team wins, say, a state championship, and they're greeted with fanfare as they come back to town. In relatively recent memory, our stellar girls softball team has returned to town with the trophy. And if you were living under a rock and didn't know that they had persevered in that final game of the year, you would think that the town was on fire or something, right? I mean, sirens, horns, people moving around. And it isn't every day you get to see high school girls riding on a fire truck, right? I mean, it's a big deal. Now, from a time in less recent memory, I mean, no, some of you remember the return of the state championship team in the 1960s, but the rest of us have to go off of the pictures, right? The streets were packed. It's a celebration. It's a celebrated arrival of a triumphant victory. Now, the scale of these types of celebrations only amplifies with the size of the city, right? The importance of the championship and also the length of the championship drought that the city has experienced. I'm sure like me, you have memories of seeing those unfortunate ticker tape parades when the New York Yankees won a World Series. Ugh. Those, are a, those are a big deal. Uh, maybe in a little bit more recent memory, I specifically, uh, because I sort of know the landscape of the city, I remember in 2016 when the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, won the NBA title and ended a more than 40-year championship drought for their city. People were packed everywhere. They say there were two million people downtown. And as we watched on TV, you could see people climbing onto things that shouldn't be climbed on, for the record, just to get a view of the celebration. They had to see it. Now, as we head toward Easter, we find ourselves here on Palm Sunday, as we recall the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus is arriving, and he receives the welcome of a conquering king. But as we land in this passage today, we do so with a sense of gravity, right? We see this celebration, and it's astounding. But you and I know the rest of the story. We know the path that Jesus is on. Yes, he will be glorified in his resurrection and in his ascension. But the path to that glorification goes through the cross, and so there's a gravity with this story that we can't miss. And so as we come to the 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, we find a concise and pointed telling of the events. Mark tends to do this in his gospel. He gets to the point. And as we go through this passage, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to break it down into our three main points. And so the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus ordains his path to Jerusalem. He knows what he has come to Jerusalem to do. As I said before, we know how the story goes. And Jesus does too. As we go back into the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus has been talking about how he is going to suffer and how he is going to die, but the disciples don't seem to understand what Jesus is very clearly telling them. And as Jesus arrives we see that there are specific details that he knows and that he puts in place. And these things unfold just as he says they will. Secondly, we find that the people greet Jesus with an extraordinary welcome. 
Jesus is treated as a conquering king, and the, the people clearly have the expectation that this is the type of mission that Jesus is on, to conquer, to be the one who overthrows the Romans. Well, they see that he is going to take over the throne of David and be king. And as I think I say uh, nearly every year on Palm Sunday, the people are expecting a king who will give the Romans the boot. But that's not what Jesus is concerned with. Jesus is concerned with conquering sin, death, hell, and the devil. He's not concerned about conquering the Romans to throw out the establishment. He is concerned about our real problem. And finally, we see that Jesus is prepared for the path that is before him. When he arrives, he doesn't go to the seat of governmental power. Instead, he goes to the temple, and he takes a look at everything. And we've seen in the book of Hebrews recently how Jesus fulfilled what occurs in that temple. Essentially, the work that Jesus is about to do is not to overthrow Rome, but to fulfill the work of the temple and to overthrow that religious system with his sacrificial death. Now, we're pretty familiar with the story as we land here in Mark 11. We know the story of the triumphal entry. It's an annual celebration for us. But here in the book of Mark, there is a buildup. In the Gospel of Mark, it's emphasized that Jesus has been primarily out in the fringes of the region. Now, he, he's around in the areas that are not considered to be a part of Jerusalem. He's sort of out in the boonies. If you've been listening or, or watching uh, the Dwell in the Word posts that I've been make, making, I started them several weeks back, you, you have seen this. You've seen this as I've been making those videos because in the Gospel of Mark... There is this idea that Jesus is out teaching in relatively remote areas, but still, the popularity of Jesus is continuing to grow. And even though he wants the truth of his mission to be a secret, Jesus is so amazing, he is so powerful, that it can't be hidden. People see the miracles of Jesus, and they know there is something special with him. You don't feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish and not have people suspect uh, that you're something special. You don't have someone be healed by simply touching your garment and people think, ah, that's no big deal. This Jesus guy isn't very special. No, the people are seeing it. And so as you progress through Mark's gospel, you feel a tension in it that we're moving towards a conflict Jesus is popular with the people, with the ordinary people on the fringes. But the Pharisees and the religious establishment, they're not fans at all. They, they like him less than I like the Yankees, which is saying something. And so as Jesus moved towards Jerusalem, the idea that we get is that he is popular with the people. And the tension is that he's not popular. There's a lack of popularity with the Pharisees. But we see here, as we feel this tension in the text, that, it, that everything is going to transpire according to the plan of Jesus. As they draw near to Jerusalem, we find Jesus sending his disciples out to get him a colt. Now this is, this is one of those stories in the Gospels that I find the details of it extremely humorous. Uh, you've likely been sent out on an errand that you weren't too wild about, right? Your parents sent you to get something, you're like, I really don't want to do this, or some, uh, your spouse maybe wanted you to pick up something. You're not too wild about it. They give you instructions, 
And then maybe you're confused a little bit and you're nervous about doing it. You know that feeling. Can you imagine what the disciples are feeling with this part of the story? Uh, This is quite the assignment. You want us to do what now, Jesus? We're just supposed to take someone's colt? It's tied up. Somebody owns this. Can we do that, Jesus? Can't we just get one from Enterprise Rent-A-Colt or something? But Jesus clearly has a purpose for this. And we read about that in our Old Testament passage this morning. The Messiah is to come in this manner. And the underlying idea with these instructions is that Jesus has divine knowledge. He knows what's going to happen. He's on mission. What is about to happen is not off script. It isn't going to catch Jesus off guard either. These details here let us know that no matter what is going down in the next few days, it is the sovereign plan of the Almighty that it happens. And this isn't just made evident to us in Jesus claiming this knowledge. The whole thing, the whole story transpires as Jesus says it will. And the plan here continues to unfold as the disciples bring the cult to Jesus. And so with the plan in motion, we move on to our second point as we see that Jesus is greeted with an extraordinary welcome. As I've said, we're really familiar with this story, but it's important for us to understand why the people are doing this. This is not a random welcome that Jesus is receiving. To put their cloaks on the road is to receive a royal welcome. This is what they did for royalty. And the palm branches are calling back to, the, to a past reception of a conquering hero who came back to Jerusalem. In the period between the Old and the New Testament, there was a military insurrection that drove an invading empire from Jerusalem. And after the victory, the conquering heroes were greeted by the people, and they came out to the heroes waving palm branches, as our kids did this morning. And the people who came to greet Jesus this day knew this story very well. In fact, Jewish people still know this story very well because that military victory where they were greeted afterwards with the palm branches is what is celebrated on Hanukkah. And so these people were anticipating that this Jesus who was entering the city was going to be the next one to drive an invading nation out. And they were making it clear with this celebration And what we see here in our text is not some sort of praise service. It's a call for a revolution. And these people fully expect to get it. And this idea is shown to us in the words that the people are shouting. Hosanna! Now this word just sounds like a praise word to us, right? But it's actually a desperate cry to be rescued. It isn't just a call to be saved. Hosanna literally means save us now. And the people are quoting here from a messianic psalm. Remember, the people are expecting a Messiah. They know the story of the Old Testament very well. And they also know from the prophecies of Daniel that they're living in the general time frame that the Messiah is expected to arrive. This repetition of a messianic psalm here tells us that they have an expectation that Jesus is the guy. He's the Messiah. He's the one. Save us now! And I need to remind you, because I do every Palm Sunday, they are not saying, save us now. 
because they expect the Messiah to come and rescue them from sin, death, and hell. They're expecting an earthly king who throws out the Romans. And we read the words in this passage, and we might even get some warm, sentimental feelings as we read them. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Because what do our minds go to? Naturally, we think Jesus is the Messiah, the rightful heir of David's throne, who will reign on his throne forever. Hallelujah. Heaven be praised. That's what we think. We remember that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins and we have the sure and certain, certain promise of eternal life. But that's not at all what these people are expecting. They were after an earthly kingdom where the Romans are gone and Herod is gone and the true descendant of David is sitting on the throne and ruling over them. And we need to remember this. Their perspective was off. They were looking for an earthly king, a revolution. But the praise that they were giving Jesus was correct, right? He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the true descendant of David that God has ordained to be on the throne forever. Now in the Gospels, but especially in Mark, there's this idea of what we call the messianic secret. Because we see in the Gospels who Jesus truly is, Because we see his miracles, we see his teaching with authority. But Jesus doesn't want the people to know who he is. He tells people over and over, you you know this, he tells people, don't tell them who I am. Whenever they confess him to the Messiah, he's like, ixnay, right? He doesn't want people to know. But as the people praise Jesus on Palm Sunday, on that day, the secrecy is over. The mask has been removed. And Jesus is letting people know who he is. And while they have the incorrect assumptions regarding what the work of the Messiah will be, they have accurately identified who he is. And this is why Jesus receives an extraordinary welcome. He deserves one. And while the people that day did not worship him for what he was going to do, we know who he is and what he has done. But Jesus would not be distracted by the desires of the people for that political conquest. Instead, Jesus is on mission. And as we move to our final point today, we find that Jesus is prepared for the path that is before him. And we see that he's prepared for that path by the direction he goes once he gets to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the seat of political power when he arrives in Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to the temple. He goes to the seat of the sacrificial system. It was in the temple that the sacrifices were received for the sins of the people. Now, as a discerning reader here, you you might catch something in this verse. As we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews and mentioning the holy place and the most holy place over the last several weeks, I said multiple times while we were in those verses in Hebrews that only Levites went into the temple. But here, what does it say? It says that Jesus went into the temple, and as we've talked about many times, Jesus wasn't a Levite. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I wasn't lying to you. When it says that Jesus went into the temple, it means that he went into the outer court. And the best way for us to understand what this is saying here is like if you told someone, hey, I'm, I'm going on over to church, 
but you didn't come here in the sanctuary. You maybe went in to get something for your box, or you met somebody in the yard for a discussion. That's the idea here. Jesus is going to the temple. He's not going in, but he is in the general vicinity. And so the idea is that Jesus goes to the area around the temple, and he surveys everything. And what would Jesus have seen? Money changers, people bringing animals for sacrifices, and people performing their religious duties. Now remember, he's been here before this. It isn't like you or I taking in something we've only heard of or seen on TV and and then seeing it in person for the first time. This is Jesus, and he's coming to the temple, and he's surveying the whole system. He knows about it. And as he looks upon it, what does he find? Is the system that's in place there at the temple truly giving people a clear conscience before God? Is it providing them once and for all a a sacrifice to satisfy the payment for their sin? Is it causing people to worship God in spirit and in truth? Or are these people just following a religious system? And we know the answer, right? As I've mentioned multiple times, think, think back to what we've seen in the book of Hebrews this year. What occurred in the temple was only pointing forward to what Jesus was going to accomplish for his people. Now, we can't know exactly what Jesus was thinking as he surveyed the temple mount that day. But as the sovereign Lord of history, he knew that he was going to fulfill what the temple required with the sacrifice that was going to occur in just a few days on Good Friday. And ultimately, his focus and his willingness to be on mission is going to lead to Good Friday. Remember what the people wanted. They wanted political revolution, and he wasn't going to provide it for them. Now we wonder how we go from the triumphal entry to Good Friday in just a matter of days. But when we stop and when we think about it, it's actually pretty easy. The religious leaders already don't like Jesus. And without a political revolution, the people who are yelling, save us now, they're going to stop supporting Jesus too. And we find that Jesus is betrayed Not only by the masses when they call for Barabbas instead of him. He's even betrayed by one of his own disciples. In fact, the one who will betray him is among the twelve we read about here in this passage. During this week, Jesus will be in Jerusalem, but they stay at a short distance in Bethany, perhaps with their good friends Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And while these twelve disciples should be the ones who support him in what is to come. We find out later this week that Jesus couldn't even trust those who were supposed to be loyal to him. The true king of the universe, who is the promised Messiah, the one who deserves this praise, is praised on Sunday. But by Friday, he is jeered, and the masses call for his life. The twelve who he is closest with should be his protectors. They should be his friends. But not only does one of them betray him, the rest run away. What a path for the Messiah and the Lord of glory to be on. But even knowing this path, Jesus stayed on mission 
and he did it for you. And so as we wrap up today, I want us to contemplate these truths as we come away with our two applications for this morning. The first, the first thing I want us to see is that we are called to worship the Savior. The people in Jerusalem that day were singing hosannas and praises to Jesus, but they were not worshiping Jesus because he was the Savior of their souls. They were worshiping him for what they believed he would do for them. And it was short-sighted and it was earthly. Now, it's easy for us to call out to God, asking for the things of this life that we want so badly. But it's another thing to be content with what God has given us, and what God has given us is what we truly need. The people on Palm Sunday thought their greatest need was overthrowing the Romans, but their true greatest need was salvation from sin, death, and hell. So may we look past the temporary and the earthly, and may we worship God in spirit and in truth for the true salvation that he has so graciously blessed us with. May we praise him with hosannas that understand that he has saved us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And secondly, as we journey towards Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Easter, it is that salvation that is in view for us As with the path that we know Jesus willingly took for us, the challenge for us is to pursue the path that he has put before us. The work of Jesus that we remember this week was to bring the people of God to himself. And that work draws us near to him. And it's how we are saved by his merciful grace. And that grace puts us on a path that is ordained by God. That path is growth in that grace. That path is holiness. And this week, as we remember the path that Jesus took, I want to challenge us to think about what his path for us looks like. As the covenant people of God, we are called to obedience. We're called to holiness. What does that look like for you? What areas of your life do you need to submit to God and rest on his grace how can your family pursue the path that, is God, that God has called you to? And as you recollect this week on the path that Jesus took into Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again for you, consider what it means for you to follow him and the path that he has ordained for you. Because we have been called by God to serve him because of the grace that he has blessed us with. And so, May the Holy Spirit be at work in you today and every day that our paths, the path that God has called us on, might bring glory to Christ for who he is and for what he has done to save us. Amen.